All right. I decided to name this message being brainwashed. We're going to be talking about Jesus washing the feet, the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper. The big idea is that it wasn't actually about feet getting cleaned. But why don't we read the Word of God together, and then we'll go from there. This is a longer portion, so would you just forgive me? It seemed like we needed to read a bunch this morning. Um, but I like putting up the words here for you, so hopefully this helps us follow along. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, uh, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has has bathed, does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he'd washed their feet and put on outer garments, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you to a soul that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted his heel against... Sorry, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it's taken place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Who is it, Lord? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan 
entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what, are you going, what, are you, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Father God, would you help us this morning? Uh, we know that this, this meal was probably the most important meal in human history. Where Jesus instituted the Last Supper. He instituted our communion. And he had this conversation with his disciples. Jesus, I pray that you would write on our hearts everything you want us to get from this message this morning. And all God people said, Amen. Amen. So I want to kind of digest this event publicly with you. Uh, many people have heard of this story before. For how many of us is this not the first time you've heard about this? Okay, put up your hands nice and high. I do require interaction. Thank you very much. So most of us have heard this story before. And there is a problem with familiarity. There is a problem with familiarity. Usually when we get used to something, we start, stop taking it seriously. And for the people that Jesus was having this meal with, this Passover meal, they were ranging in age from probably around 18 or 20 all the way up to a later age. We're not totally sure. People didn't care that much how old people were back then, it doesn't seem. But they were a mixed bag of disciples of different ages. Some of them could have done this. This might have been the 40th or 50th time they've had a Passover meal together. And Jesus uh, decided that this was a good time to really mess up some expectations. And he decided that it was really important that he made things awkward. Some people like Calvary Chapel because of the awkwardness. Anybody? Yeah? That's one of my spiritual gifts. It's actually the twelfth fruit of the Spirit, and it's the one that I do best at. Sometimes gentleness is okay, joy, sometimes hit and miss, love is a challenge, but awkward, I always deliver on time. <laughs> it's Amazon Prime Week for me every single week when it comes to awkwardness. And I was looking at this this morning, and I couldn't even spell the word awkward because it's an awkward word. What word has WKW in the middle of it? Like, that is just weird. That's too many W's. Am I right? Am I wrong? It's just awkward. So they're in the middle of this meal. It's a very important meal. Passover is probably the most important um, event in the Hebrew calendar where they remember the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and how they didn't deserve to get rescued, but God was saving them by grace, and so they needed to sacrifice that lamb and put the blood over the doorpost so that the avenging angel that was coming against Egypt would pass over them instead of bringing God's just judgment against the Israelites as well. Grace would be over them, forgiveness would be over them, and they'd be able to head out without suffering the same judgment that was going over Israel. And they were having this meal as a remembrance. And they're in the middle of it, and the scripture says, as we just read, they're kind of in the middle of the supper, and Jesus is looking around at everybody, just kind of probably hanging out and doing their 
discipleship relationships. You know, they were arguing about who the greatest was right about this, and they were probably all still jockeying for position and ribbing these guys. You have the little cliques over here and the, the anti-clique over there. Everybody knows there's cliques and anti-cliques, right? There's the in-crowd, and then there's the crowd that's not in, so then they're their own in-crowd, and sometimes the not-in-crowd becomes the in-crowd, and the not-anymore-in-crowd becomes the anti-crowd, blah, blah, blah. They're just being human. And Jesus looks at that and he decides that it's time to make things awkward and make a point. Now, we don't really do foot washing in our culture, true, uh, because we wear shoes. And so, uh, I mean, lots of people are wearing sandals nowadays and that's great, but usually we have sidewalks and stuff. We're not walking out in dirt roads with horses and mules and donkeys leaving their own contributions to the environment all over the road that you end up stepping in by accident and needing to wash off. But we do have dirty shoes, and I really love my shoes. I got these great shoes. They're the best lasting shoes ever, but they do get really dusty, and that's bothersome to me. So I'm going to solve that problem right now, if that's okay with you. So Jesus decides it's time to make things awkward for his disciples, and what he does is he takes the role of like a slave because it would have been one of the slave's jobs to wash people's feet after the meal or before the meal. And you wonder even if they already had their feet washed a bit because people usually wash up before their meal, right? They don't get halfway through and then go, oh, my feet! They do it in the middle. This is the worst part right here, under the tongue, getting the stuff out of there. That's right. And then also this crease at the back. It's funny how the sweat actually helps. <laughs> get, get it in there. So Jesus takes off his kind of good clothes, and he finds a towel, and he wraps it around it, and he's making it awkward for everybody because he decides he's going to, oh man, wash all his disciples' feet, Gotta get the lint out of there. It's, I mean, black socks are great, but everyone can tell when you've been wearing black socks because of the lint, right? That's probably the thing bothering you guys the most. And there was part of the point. He's washing his disciples' feet, and it would be like, you know, if you were going to McDonald's after church, and you were going to make in your order, and guess who showed up to take your order? But Pastor Rob, right? You'd be, it'd be like, hey, you know, I'd like two cheeseburgers. Like, I guess so, yes, for the soup. Like, and you drove up to the window, and it's me there. Wouldn't you think something's weird? <laughs> Besides wondering what kind of character judgment fail happened that they hired me there, but you'd just be like, what, what are you doing running the, the window at McDonald's? You're the pastor of my church. And so Jesus is washing these feet and doing this like servant mode when, when he's the Lord and teacher. And it's just so awkward for everybody. Because they, they knew how these Passover meals are supposed to go, Right? You do this thing, I do this thing, we drink from the cup, and then we eat some lamb, and then we say these prayers, and, and we have our, our orders of who's popular and not popular, and who's the boss and who's not the boss, and the boss is out there like, 
chiseling mule dung off of Peter's moldy, crusty big toe. Except, and then we know that it was a problem because when it's Peter's turn, Peter's the outspoken one. Peter's the like shoot first, ask questions later guy in the group. He's the speak first and then, oh, I shouldn't have said that guy. And so he's just like, no, you can't touch me. And, and he's the MC Hammer, can't touch this. And I'm sure he did the, the little dance or whatever. But he's got this, he's, the whole interaction with Peter, you know, don't touch my feet. You'll never wash my feet. Okay, now give me a whole body sponge bath. That whole interaction there just reeks of somebody who does not know what to do in that situation. Do you know what I'm talking about? He just, Jesus wrecked his Passover. And he doesn't know what to do. So he's going to try everything and get it wrong every way. And it just makes me think like Jesus was trying to make a point and in order to begin to make the point, he needed to make them all feel very, very uncomfortable. And I just think about that because don't, if you're like me, you, isn't the point to like, of your life to try to get your life the way you want it to be? Like, aren't any of you guys like working on like a career or anything like that or hoping to go back someplace in the fall and you've got these plans to get things just the way you want them to be? You can just imagine whoever was responsible for the Passover meal, those two guys that went and got everything ready. They've got it all ordered. We've got the lamb. We've got the food. And then you're going to wash up. And we've got it all. We've got the, the thing. And then, you know, you start at 10 o'clock and then we're going to have communion. And then it's message time. And then that's going to last for 35, 45 hours. And then, you know, after that, it's the prayer time and then we go home and then we try to get out there and get a sun time we've got it all figured out and if we get the routine just the way it would keep us happiest we might learn nothing we might get 100% comfort and 0% kingdom and then Rob takes his sock off and then all of a sudden I know what you're all talking about over lunch and I know for my birthday, I'm going to be getting some toenail clippers. Because it's been a while, and it's on camera. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this is the time to move on, face. Good. <laughs> Love you, babe. It's still a beautiful face. But are you tracking with me on this? It's like there's something about saying yes to Jesus in your life where it's really important that you know he feels he has the right to mess up your day. Because half the time, if we even get what we want, we'll still miss him, even when we want good things. The other half of the time, we don't want good things. And his love looks like rooting our plans. And a lot of wisdom is just figuring out which one of those things we're dealing with here. Well, the blessed if you do it part. I sympathize with the disciples because when you go and read this story, we read it as people hearing John process this in the Holy Spirit. 
And he says a lot of stuff to us to help us out. He says to us, well, this is before the Feast of the Passover, and Jesus knew this, and Jesus knew that, and all this stuff was happening. He tells us what the devil was doing. He tells us what God was doing. The devil had no clue. They didn't know what's going on. They're just like, gurgle, gurgle, when are we going to eat? That's, you know, that's all. And maybe they're a little bit stunned. You know, didn't we? You know, Jesus has been fighting with people in the temple quite a bit these days. <laughs> you know, the, looked like some of those soldiers were kind of looking like they were, you know, polishing up their handcuffs to, to get, get, get on us or whatever. You know, things get a little tense. They're probably talking about the news and talking about this. And Jesus is on this completely different realm where he's meditating on his chosenness in the Father. He's meditating on how he is about 95% done his to-do list for coming to earth and being born of a virgin and being you know, shuttled away to Egypt and then coming back and living in Nazareth and learning his trade and then starting his ministry and getting filled with the Holy Spirit and traveling around doing miracles and teaching and raising up these disciples and empowering them. And he's about 95% done pleasing the Father. He's got one more big thing to do. He's looking over his disciples, and 11 of them are his chosen disciples that he loves with all his heart and is about to go die for, and then that one worst human being who was ever created is right there also eating with him. Anybody think about that? Your last family gathering? And just look at Jesus' peace. The one, the one worst human being of all time that Dante puts in the center of hell in the lake of fire or lake of ice. It's right there, and Jesus is like, I, I get everything that's going on. And they don't yet. So I'm going to do something that's going to mess up their plans, and they're going to get a lesson. And so he washes their feet, and he has his interaction with Peter, and then he says, blessed are you if you do it. And this is the thing about Jesus. This is one of the things, I hope I'm not losing anybody. Jesus knows we live in this world where everything means more than it is. Everything means more than what it is. Okay? For Jesus, bread isn't just bread. It's not just like ground up wheat with some gluten in there. Bread means like the Father sustains you. And water doesn't just mean water. It means that absolute chaos that I walk across when I want to prove a point about my godness. And a man isn't just a man. He is the image of God in the masculine expression, particularly designed to show off government and authority. And a woman isn't just a woman. She is God's life-giving power made flesh. And foot washing isn't just about dirt. It's about the entire process of salvation. That once you're washed, you're clean, but you're going to need Jesus to clean you off every single day for the rest of your life until you see him face to face. Because God is a spirit. And when he made everything, he made it all to talk about God. 
So everything is itself, and everything means way more than itself. A marriage isn't just a marriage. It is God testifying to the marriage of the Lamb to his bride. All of them. And a child isn't just a child. It's a testimony to how small and needy we are towards the Father, that we need him every single day. Everything means more than it is to Jesus because Jesus sees things how they actually are. We're the ones that kind of get, we shrink things down to what we can control. So Jesus gives them this lesson. And he's teaching them something, and so many things, but this is one of these passages where all kinds of scholars write all kinds of long books and they might disagree with each other about what this all means. and That's fine. At the very least, Jesus is trying to give them another lesson about authority. Am I the boss? Says Jesus. They're like, yeah, this is why we're so upset. Well, if I'm the boss and I wash your feet, when you're the boss, you wash some people's feet. Clear? And one of the things this does is it reminds me that there is such a thing as the boss. We live in this interesting culture that's very influenced by leftism, which if you want a definition for it, is really the philosophy that if you can find something wrong with something, you have a right to destroy it. That's what leftism is. It's very sensitized to any kind of injustice. And when it finds injustice in something, it's, it doesn't really want to fix it. It wants to burn it down. Right? That's what leftism does. Well, marriage can lead to divorce. Destroy marriage. Children can ruin your life. Destroy children. Justice systems can lead to injustice. Burn down the courts. Police can be bad police. Defund the police. Anytime leftism finds something wrong with this world, and guess what? Everything's broken at least a little bit. They think, time to destroy it. Anybody have problems with there being such a thing as authority in the church? Anybody have problems with the idea of headship in the home? If our response is to reject these things, that's more leftism than Jesus. Jesus' response is, you're right to call me Lord and Teacher, because that's what I am. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Capital T. And I am among you as someone who washes your feet. And this is where we get kingdom fix in a world that wants to do political conflict. It's right. Authority that's all selfish and me and domineering and enslaving, that ain't any good. Heads of the home who are self-absorbed heads of the home, you're doing more harm than good. Church leaders, <laughs> I'll speak for myself, they get really obsessed about being treated like a church leader. <laughs> Maybe you should go on vacation for a bit until I figure that out. But it is real. Elders really are elders. God takes it really serious, even if we don't. It's the thing about the Lord. Even if we don't believe how he runs the world, he still runs the world the way he's going to run the world. And our unbelief is our problem. 
If we're the ones stumbling around in the dark and we run into a wall, that's our fault. He says, turn on the light. If you're done stubbing your toe and bruising your face, turn on the light. Find out how God runs the world. Find out how God runs homes. Find out how God runs churches. You change, says the Lord. But at the same time, there is such a thing as leadership and authority, but it needs to be the kingdom way. Humility first. Servanthood first. How low can you go? And that's the only way almost anything is preserved over time, or else it self-destructs and gets destroyed. God's will, God's way. What do you say? And they kind of need to know this. Because there is such a thing as the devil. This is one of this is you know, I come to a passage sometimes and I'm thinking one way about it, and then I see some things in the book, and I'm like, this is gonna be a different message than I was originally planning here. And one of the weirdest things about this moment and this meal is how much effort John is taking to make sure people know that Satan also came to this supper. There's Jesus, there's the disciples, and Satan is there too. Anybody thought about that? You know, Leonardo da Vinci and his whole, like, has anybody noticed there's Satan in that picture somewhere? Probably. But John's really, he wants them to know that Satan has already put an idea into Judas's heart before Jesus gets up to wash their feet, and then after Jesus and John have that little interaction, that's when Satan really starts moving and gets the ball going where Judas is going to hand Jesus over through betrayal to his crucifixion. Do you guys ever think about Judas? Because he was just a guy. And one of the things that gets me about Judas is that nobody knew Judas was Judas until he Judas. It's actually kind of freaky. Because the 12 disciples were out there doing the disciple thing. Jesus would send them out, you know, go preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, all this stuff. And Judas could do it. We don't have any record of him coming back and being like, it doesn't work for me. I don't know what's going on. Everyone's going to like, what's up with Judas? Everybody else has got like three or four resurrections from the dead. <laughs> Judas prays for somebody, they end up with more demons instead of less. <laughs> we don't have any record that anybody had of a clue. The one record we do have is that when Judas went out to go betray Jesus, everyone thought the best of him. Maybe he was going out to buy some food for us. Maybe he was going out to give money to the poor. He wasn't. That's crazy. Everyone thought the best. And we don't have a ton in Scripture explaining what was going on in Judas's heart. We knew that he used to help himself out of the money bag, so obviously he was a bit of a thief and self-centered. But I wonder sometimes if the point of, of God not saying, here are 72 things that Judas did wrong, 
It's just to make us ask the question, hey, if Satan wanted to get me, how would he do it? And if Satan wanted to get you, how would he do it? Because you know, you probably know. To get you angry at Jesus, to get you feeling like you know better than Jesus, to get you feeling like you'd have a right to stick it to somebody. You don't need to wash no feet. You can take control of this situation. You can get yours. You can prove. People don't see you right. They don't acknowledge you right. You're not getting what you deserve. This is your life. This is your one life. YOLO, you only live once. And you need to get what you need to get. It's a crazy question. Maybe don't ask this to yourself unless you've got some time to think, but if Satan was going to get you, how would he get you? If Satan was going to get you to sell your soul, what would he have to offer you to really tempt you? Or me? For me, I think it would be offense. I do stupid things when I'm offended. This is that moment. In North America, preachers are kind of expected to take you out of that, like, Heavy feeling right now? So I'm just going to count to ten and let you sit there for a little bit longer. Like Satan's here now, as far as we know. And if not him, one of his servants, how would he rob you of getting God's best for you from this time in the presence of the Lord? What what thought would he have to just speak into your heart so that you write off anything God might be saying to you this morning? You know, God, you know how God talks, right? It's going to involve feeling humble. It's going to involve feeling like God's right and you're wrong. It's going to involve feeling like you're going to have to trust God's love instead of feeling in control. It's going to feel like it's kind of costing you feeling like you fit in with the world because all of a sudden he's going to ask you not to fit in with the world so much. You know what it feels like when God's calling you, right? It's a call to like get more of Jesus but maybe lose more of yourself. It's going to feel like having to get out of the boat and start walking on the water instead of the safety of holding on to whatever you know. It's going to involve forgiving people. It's going to involve feeling maybe less proud of yourself. (laughs) We know what it's like when Jesus is talking. And we know that the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. And we know that there's a raven waiting to eat up the seed that the sower's throwing on you. Well, the good news is, is that we have a Lord who is so committed to us knowing the truth. I'm going to try to find that verse. Verse 19. I was right there. 
Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. If you ever wonder, like, it's always tricky. You don't want to say the one thing because there's always another one thing that's the one thing. Anybody know that? Like, it's such a banquet of importance in the kingdom of God. There are 10,000 most important things in the kingdom. Thank God Jesus wants to give it to all of them to us. All the 10,000 most important things. God loves numbers. It's a whole book of the Bible, and he's way better with math. But he knows the way to give us 10,000 most important things. But one of those most important things is that we believe in Jesus truly. It is so important to us that we know him how he really is. Even to the point of letting his 11 disciples have a meal with Judas and have their whole world come crashing down when their Lord, who just washed their feet and they know can raise people from the dead and is the prophet of God, is going to get arrested and he's going to get beaten and Peter's going to be brave enough to follow along but cowardly enough to deny Jesus and have to run away crying and they're going to see him crucified and they're going to be so disappointed and they're going to find out that Judas was the one that betrayed him to the point that they feel like they might never even be able to trust a human being again and then remember that Jesus told them that this was going to happen before it ever did so that they would know that Jesus is he there's 10,000 most important things but the most important thing in your life It's knowing who Jesus really is. To Jesus. Scarily, Jesus is willing to send us or let us go through mountain loads of trouble and all kinds of hurt we would never wish for. But through everything we know that the Master wants us to know that He is Lord and Teacher and that He's chosen us. This is the, one of the... I love the Gospel of John. John is the John Calvin of the disciples. He's got his sovereignty of God on turned up to 11 through his Gospel, which I really love. But he knows. Jesus just knows. And he loves you. And he knows all the mountain loads of poop that are coming your way. And he knows he loves you and he's chosen you and me too. And he knows all the mountain loads of hurt and sense of betrayal and letdown and questioning that are coming our way. And he knows that he loves us and he's chosen us and it's going to be okay because it's all coming through the sovereignty of a Jesus who knows the best thing that can happen to you is really knowing him. And the whole point of going to heaven, like this is one of the things, why, why do you want to go to heaven? I've told you this before, I'll tell you again, this isn't a joke, I ain't lying, all that stuff people say. I had a teacher one time who wanted to go to heaven because he, his vision of heaven was a hockey rink with an 18-hole golf course around it, which is only a few people's idea of heaven, I am sure. 
but do you get better? <laughs> it's just like, yes, you get the 18-hole golf course, but your handicap is going to be 52 for all of eternity. Eh, which, where did I end up? For me, I just, what I imagine heaven being like, to try to get the point about knowing Jesus here, is heaven is being stuck in between floors in an elevator, and all you've got is Jesus. Do you still want to go? You know what I mean? Like, you go press the button, one of your kids is playing around, they press the button, and it's going up between floor one and floor two. If you're stuck in the elevator, and all you've got is Jesus, do you want to go? For me... Yeah, totally, totally. I, that practical part of my mind goes, but what am I going to do about going to the bathroom? That, you know, that's legit, and I'm sure Jesus can solve that. He's very creative. But this, the, I play these mind games, not with other people, just myself, I promise. This is what Jesus is getting at here. And this is, I think, sometimes where I can get out of step with the Lord. Jesus is just like, Rob, if you've got me, you're going to be okay. And I don't always believe him. Anybody else like me? Yeah. You know, God still loves us. But we're on the journey with him. He wants us to keep getting it. Jesus plus nothing is heaven on earth. So, speaking of being brainwashed, should I make sense of the title of the message? The point of Jesus washing the disciples' feet was not to wash their feet. It was to wash their brains. They were filled with all kinds of ways of looking at the world and looking at themselves that did not know God. And by scrubbing their toes and getting the poop off of the bottom, he was actually fixing how they think. And he was saying to his disciples, y'all need a brainwash. Y'all need to learn that it's wonderful to become a Lord as long as you're willing to scrub toes. And it's wonderful to have the honor of being a dad as long as you never stop changing diapers. Change the diaper this week. Never growing out of diapers. Probably never growing out of diapers. Woo! It's wonderful to be a church leader as long as you never stop flossing your toes in front of your congregation so they don't start thinking things about you that aren't true. Because we need our brains totally scrubbed. We need our brains so deeply scrubbed by God who loves us. That's all i got to say this morning. So Father God, 
Thank you for giving us a Jesus who chooses us. Thank you for giving us a Jesus who loves us so much that he'll interrupt all our preps and do something so awkward to help us change how we think. Thank you for giving us somebody who loves us so much that he persists in insisting that we know him as he really is. Thank you, God, for giving us a Jesus who is willing to die for us, to wash us not with water, but with his own blood, not so that we can be clean in the sight of men and women, but that we can be clean in the sight of the holy God himself. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would keep deconstructing the world of man and the kingdom of darkness out of our minds. Lord, I know people talk about deconstructing their faith. I pray we would be deconstructing our unbelief by the power of God in the face of Jesus in the word of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you be deconstructing our worldliness and deconstructing our self-deceptions and deconstructing where our hurts say no to Jesus. You cannot wash my feet to Jesus. And Jesus, in love and with your persistence, you would be deconstructing what we don't believe right and rebuilding and building for the first time or clarifying and building up who you are and the vision of you and our knowledge of you. Father, when we've been swept up into this whole leftist world of burning down everything that we can see something wrong with, I pray, Lord, that you'd raise up hope for your restoration, your kingdom restoration in your good gifts, in your world, until you return. And Father, if we're stuck in tradition in such a way that we can't endure evaluating how things are going to see a better way in the kingdom, I pray you grant us humility and strengthen you and our confidence in you so that you can make things better along the way. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray you'd make us love children, love children from conception all the way through birth and to maturity. I pray you'd help us love the disabled, Lord Jesus, People who are born in our eyes, not in your eyes, but in our eyes is not being able to do what they might do. I pray you'd help us to love them and love them in their weakness and love them in their uniqueness. Father, I pray you'd help us to not put our hope in identities that come from the world or from the internet or Google, but from this precious identity as being chosen by Jesus and loved by Jesus and refined by Jesus and kept by Jesus. And that this would be an exclusive identity that kind of pushes out or rules over or judges and critiques every other kind of identity that people can have in the world. And Lord, that you would help us have such joy in the face of Christ. Lord, that it would be kingdom. It would be that amazing mix of a power and a spiritual poverty, of strength and submission, of authority without arrogance, God, this miracle that only you can do in the human heart, I pray would become common. In Jesus' name.